and turn to James, that passage we read a little earlier. When I was in college and in seminary, actually, a number of people that I knew um, audited a class um, for various reasons, and maybe you've done this yourself or know of others who have. Um, They wanted the information that they could get from the class, but they didn't want to do any of the work that the course required to get a credit. And so, in other words, they paid for the class, attended the lectures, heard all that the teacher said, but didn't do any of the homework or the assignments or the work projects or the papers, the quizzes or tests. Basically, they wanted to hear everything without doing anything. See, that's acceptable in college, but not in Christianity. See, it's fine academically, but it's not fine spiritually. So that's what James is talking about at the end of chapter 1. He's going to give us the test. James is a series of tests that proves the validity of your faith. Um, We don't do things to gain our faith or be saved. That's all by the grace of God. But if we truly are saved and we have what I've been calling a nonfiction faith, then it will be demonstrated in the way that we live. And these last number of verses from 18 on, four times, as we said last week, talk about the Word in particular. And so the Bible test holds out this one major question this morning that I want to pose to you. And that is this, are you a hearer of the word only or are you also a doer? Or let me ask it with my, my, aud- my um, audit metaphor this morning. Are you auditing the Bible or are you doing the classwork as well? See, Bible auditors, they love to learn the Bible but they're not so focused on living the Bible. See, they can quote it with their lips, but often do not quote it with their lives, if you know what I mean. They are adept at reading books, listening to podcasts, sermons, being involved in Bible studies, all good things. Somehow, nothing changes. It doesn't change in their relationships with people inside and outside the church. It doesn't really change how they respond to the trials and the temptations that they face on a daily basis. See, the Bible for a Bible auditor, it informs them, but it does not transform them. It doesn't change the filter by which they use their decision-making process. It doesn't change their priorities and values. It really doesn't affect their parenting skills and what they do to raise their children. See, Bible auditors, I would say, have a lot of Bible in, but they don't have as much, nearly as much Bible out. A non-fiction faith, then, is one that is complete, one that completes the Bible course and does not simply audit it for the information alone. And that's what the Bible test that James presents to all of us this morning is this. Do you hear and do you do God's word? And so he writes it, though, in a family context because in the preceding two paragraphs, he begins those paragraphs with beloved brethren. See, it's a church family, and he's concerned about his church family, and that's why I bring it to you today. We do it out of love for one another. You know why? Because James was concerned that the people who sat, quote-unquote, in the pews in his church in Jerusalem would become spiritual auditors, that they would be people who thought that they were okay with God because they knew a lot of the Bible, but all along they didn't really do much of it. And so here's what James does and what we're going to do this morning. He gives us two sets of contrasts, one in verses 22 through 25 and one in verses 26 and 27. And he wants to warn us from becoming Bible auditors. 
Now, these two sets of contrasts, look at your scriptures, because I want you to see this and how it works. They are set off by the same grammatical structure. Notice how verse 22 and 26 starts with this little phrase, if anyone. See those? They're exactly the same structure in the original language because he's going to do the same thing, but with a different topic of contrast in each one of them. He's going to say, if any is a hearer but not a doer, and if you're religious without interchange, he's going to talk about both of those dangers. And can I say they are a danger? And I want to unpack them one at a time. So we're going to look at the two kinds of hearers, but I want to give you, as our church family, a warning. Jesus said this to the most religious people the best Bible experts of his day. And I'm not saying this to demean people who study the Bible here, but I would doubt that any of us, including myself, would hold a candle to how studious the first century Pharisees and religious leaders were and how they knew the Bible. But here's what he says to elite Bible scholars. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Listen to this. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But you do not, it says, believe in me or the witness that I bear. In other words, they knew the Bible inside and out, backwards and forwards, but they didn't have eternal life. But they fought because they knew the scriptures really, really, really well. That that meant they had eternal life. And Jesus says, you think that's true but it's not. You see, James is also talking to a very biblically literate people. And I would think that most of the people in our church, some more than others, of course, that you know the Bible pretty well. You can get around in it. You know the things that are in it. And some of them very, very well. And that's why James in this passage talks about hearing the Bible four times. But he talks about doing it I'm sorry, hearing three times, but doing four times because he doesn't want you to come to the place in your life ask yourself if this is what you are, that you are satisfied with just hearing it, studying it, knowing it, quoting it, reading it, memorizing it, without really doing it. And so in verse 22, he begins with the first contrast with those who hear the word of God, but they don't do it. And become, he says, verse 22, doers of the word and not hearers, listen to this, deceiving yourselves And the Greek word, it means this, to continually do it. It is a lifestyle. And he says, doers are people whose lives are patterned after action. They're people who put it into practice. They're not just people who can spout off verses and know how to defend their faith as great as all those things are. They are people who do it daily, in and out, in all the contexts and situations and circumstances. They they practice it. They are not just marked as Bible auditors. They are Bible actors. People who live it. And James says, you know why you need to know this? Because it's dangerous to think that hearing alone does it. So he says, those people who hear and don't do, they are self-deceived. Now, the word deceive is really, really big in James 1. Look at verse 16. Look at verse 22. I just read you. And look at verse 26. 
throughout this little segment, he is warning people, don't be deceived. And what he's talking about is not deception that takes place outside of you, someone trying to deceive you by telling you wrong things. No, this is more insidious because it's an inside, an inner deception, that you can actually be a person who comes to church, knows your Bible pretty well, sits in this pew, and you can talk yourself into thinking that everything is good with you and God when all you do basically is hear the Bible, but you don't do much of it. And so three times he says, listen, don't fall into this lie. Don't fall into this deception and think that if you just hear it, it's enough. Let me tell you how, a little bit more how strong the warning is. Jesus tells a parable, a story, about a rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16 verses 19 through 31. And he tells the story of a man who sat outside a rich man's gate, and his name is Lazarus. And he sits there every day, and he has no food, and he's hungry. And the Bible says to the point where the man in the house who's rich has luxurious living and food, the guy outside of his gate would like to have the crumbs comes from his table, and, that, and the only companions he has are the dogs that lick his sores. The crazy thing happens. They both die, and the rich man is in hell, which would have been a shock to Jesus' listeners to the story because they equated richness with God's blessing would have thought, of course, the poor man went to hell and the rich man didn't, but the opposite was true. It was a reversal. Luke is full of those. And in the text, the man in hell realizes this toward the end of the story in verses 27 through 31. Here's what he says. He has five brothers, and seemingly from the story, the, the indirect assumption is that his brother's are all wealthy as he is. And he's in hell and he realizes that his faith, or lack thereof, he had a non he had a fiction faith, obviously, because he's in hell. And the reason is why? Because he didn't do what the Bible said about helping poor people and loving people who are needy that you were able to help. James is going to talk about that in chapter two. He didn't hurt the guy, he didn't hurt Lazarus, he didn't kick him, he didn't mistreat him. He ignored him for a long time. And the Bible says, not only love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, but to love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19. And he didn't do that. He thought that he could just hear the Bible but never do it. And, you know, when he says, send Lazarus back from the dead to warn my brothers lest they come to this place of torment. And here's what Abraham says. They have, listen to this, they have Moses and the prophets. Listen to this. They have the word of God. If they'll just listen to the Bible and do it, they won't be where you are. But this guy says, no, the Moses and the prophets is not enough. Send someone back from the dead and then they'll listen. And you know what Abraham says? No, Moses and the prophets. See, here's how people change. Here's the real demonstration of your faith is that you have heard Moses and the prophets, you have heard the word of God, you believe it, and you do it. See, that's how important it is. Jesus would say eternal ramifications are at stake. Don't deceive yourself. Well, you got to ask the question, don't you? Because I'm thinking about it. How do people deceive themselves in such a way? Well, he tells you in verse 23, see the little word for? He's going to tell you, here's the reason why people think that this is true in their lives, that they could just hear it and really not do much of it. Hearing without doing. Here's what he says. Look, there are two kinds of people, and they look into the Bible, and he uses the analogy of a mirror. Now, today, 
we have mirrors and they're very nice. We have them in our, we have them everywhere, don't we? You have them in your room, you have them in your dresser, you have them in your bathroom, you have ones you hold in your hand. I try to get rid of mirrors because I'm not real interested in this too much, right? But we have them and they're beautiful and they're big and they're very clear. In New Testament times, they weren't. They weren't made of glass. They didn't have those yet. They were made of bronze, polished bronze. And if you had some money, polished silver, it was a little more clear. But all the mirrors did not really show you very clearly. You had to really look close at it. Remember the text in 1 Corinthians 13, 12? We look through a mirror dimly. Well, that's why, because all the mirrors were dim. So the first picture is, look at this. It says in verse 23, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, here's what he's like. He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. In other words, he gets really close to it because, again, it's not a great reflection, but you can see it, and you've got to get really close, and you've got to really pay attention. And here's what a guy who hears and does not do. Here's what it is. He looks at it really closely, and then he forgets. Immediately, it says. He goes his way and forgets what he was like. And you say, how does that happen? Imagine this. It's crazy, isn't it? You're out on your first date with some girl, and you're trying to impress her, right? You, you think she's this, she's great, and you're really looking forward to this relationship, hoping this may be the one, perhaps. And you're going out, and you decided to go to a barbecue place for dinner. And you, you, you love barbecue, and that's why you chose it. And you kind of forget the fact that you know, how important this date is, and you get caught up in the food, because I know that's what would happen to me. So, you, you, you know, barbecue is not exactly, you know, you keep the mess under control. So you realize after you've eaten this whole thing of food, and you're, you're chomping and talking at the same time, you, you probably have not done well so far. So you go, okay, excuse me, I'm going to go to the restroom. And you go to the restroom, not because you have to go to the restroom, because you need to look in the mirror. And you walk in there, again, trying to impress her, and you walk in and you realize, oh my word, Cut barbecue sauce in my face. And then you go like this, and you go, oh my word, all this stuff in your teeth, right? And you're going like, oh my word, she must think I'm an idiot, right? And then you go, ah, all right. And you walk back out, and you don't clean your face, you don't pick the stuff out of your teeth, you go back and sit down, and you start chomping away. Who does that? You say, Pastor Walker, that's simple. Nobody does that. Yes, we do. We look at the Bible, and we've got sin sauce all over our face, right? And we've got the stuff in our teeth, and we look at it, and God says, hey, look at you, look at that. Aren't you trying to live for me? Aren't you, try, quote, aren't you trying to impress me, right? And we look at it, and you know what? We just keep going. It doesn't change anything in our lives. Imagine Peter on Easter morning, you know this text, runs to the tomb, he runs to the tomb like the ladies told him, and the stone has been rolled away. Not possible by the ladies. He, he, he gets into the tomb, and you kind of have to duck to get into it a little bit, right? And so he sees there's no body, Jesus' body, and not in the tomb. And strangely enough, the, the uh, things that covered Jesus, the cloth and all, they're not in a bundle. They're, mo- they're folded up neatly in a pile, and, and he's looking at all this, and you're going, okay, the tomb is open. Jesus isn't here. Somebody cleaned it up and really made it look nice in a tomb, and he goes, ah, I don't even know what that would mean. Oh, let's go back fishing. Who do- you don't do that. The Bible says that when he looked in, saw all that stuff, his mind starts working. He's saying, what are the implications for my life? What does this really mean for us? And he couldn't figure it all out, but his mind was going, see, and he knew that things were going to change. Listen, that's what the Bible says 
is lacking in people who hear the Bible but don't do it. See, the impression of the scripture, when you see yourself reflected in the mirror of God's word, it only lasts for a few moments. Most of us here, be honest with yourself, most of us have this kind of a ritual if we do devotions. We open up the day, we get our Bible, we read it, we even pray after we're done, and then we go to work or get to the stuff we have on our to-do list, and we don't think about what we read or what we prayed the entire rest of the day. We don't, because we're not intentional about the doing part. And we wonder why, and we begin to think, maybe the Bible doesn't really change people. Not ever thinking, because we're deceiving ourselves, that the problem is us. See, momentary reflection doesn't change anyone's life. So we read Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Literally, no rotten words but we find ourselves still cussing when we get angry. Romans 13, 14 says, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its desires, but we still keep watching things on TV that are rated horrible things and on the internet when no one's looking, and we make ourselves available to do that in secret without ever thinking about how difficult the temptation is, and we wonder why we keep doing it. 1 John 2.15, love not the world, neither the things are the world, but we find ourselves being worldly in the way that we think and approach most situations in our lives. Ephesians 4.32, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you, but we find it easier to hold grudges, and we don't know that we, why ruptured relationships are taking place in our lives, because we are convinced that things are good with us in God, when in, when in truth is, we're hearing without doing. In contrast, verse 25, if you look at your text, the next word is but. And it's the strongest way that you can contrast two things. See, there is this guy who looks at the Bible and he looks strongly to see himself clearly and, and then he leaves right away. He leaves and he doesn't do anything about it. See, there's people who look at it and leave and there's people who look at it and live it. And he says, this guy, in contrast, keeps looking into the perfect law of liberty, the complete law, the law that has been finished and completed because Jesus completed the Torah with his life, that kind of living, he says. And he keeps looking at it because he perseveres in it, the Bible says. In other words, he gets the Bible and he doesn't just look at it for a few minutes on, in the morning, done with that and go on your way and never be changed. That's not who this guy is. The guy who has a nonfiction faith keeps looking at it and he's, he's looking at the scriptures and he sees Jesus and he sees how different Jesus is from him and he keeps looking at it and looking at it and then he changes it and he intentionally practices it. And the Bible calls it the law of liberty. Now, doesn't that seem a little paradoxical? Law means rules. Liberty means freedom. Now, a lot of people in our day, their view of freedom or liberty the cultural view would be this, an absence of all restrictions. When your kids are growing up, when they're really mad because you made them do something they didn't want to, they might have said, like some of my, our family members, my kids, my, not my kids, my, my sisters and I when we were growing up, oh, I can't wait to get on our own. I can't wait to get out of the house and then I can do what I want when I want. Kids say that today. And they think that freedom and liberty is the absence of restrictions. Well, it's really not. You know what true freedom is? It's not the absence of all restrictions, but having the right restrictions in your life. 
That's what true freedom is. It is being released to be able to do what you were made to do. Tim Keller gives a couple really good examples of this. He says, consider the fish. It has gills and a fin. Now, the gills enable the fish to get oxygen while it's swimming in the water, and the fins propel it through the water so it can get from place to place and find food. Here's what he says. But should the fish stay in the water or try to get up on the land? Because, because if the fish, according to culture, is really free, he should be able to do whichever one he wants. But we all know what happens when the fish gets out of the water and onto the land. When he exercises that kind of freedom, what would happen to him in a short time? He dies. You know why? Because he loses his freedom because he didn't live out the right restrictions. Fish were made to be in water. That's where they thrive. See, freedom is not the absence of water. <laughs> it's knowing that the restrictions that you were made for the water and living accordingly. It's finding the right ones. And see, that's what the guy who looks in the Bible does. He looks at the Bible and says, oh, I hear God says, do this and don't do this. And he finds his happiness and joy in obeying and doing those things. Not saying, hey, God, I'd I like to go to heaven, but I don't want you to tell me what to do the rest of my life. That's not who this guy is. It's like having a car manual. You get a car, and we got one a few years ago after 20 years of not having very good cars, and always in the glove box, you pull it down, and there's a car manual in there. And so I'm a book guy, and so, yeah, I'm one of the nerdy dudes who gets something, and I read the instructions. I'm one of those. So I got the manual, and I looked inside, and I think I... I, I, know, no, I can't fix anything, but I know about things. So I've had so many bad cars that I've had every problem there is to have. So I looked at the manual, and it says this. You need to do your oil, change your oil, every so many miles. And here's what I said. I don't like that. I don't like those restrictions. I don't want to change the oil. I don't want to pay for it. I don't want to do it. And then it says, on top of that, you, want to, you have to do regular maintenance. You've got to rotate your tires. You have to have filters changed. You have to do all this. And I said, I don't like that. I don't want to take the time to do it. I certainly don't want to spend the money to do it. I don't want to do it. But then you, you know what? You kind of come to the realization, nobody says that, right? You know why? Because what is the owner man? Owner man? It is people who designed and built the car and know how it works. Can I tell you, the Bible is God's owner manual for your life. He tells you, see, Christian, this is what you were built to do and be. This is how your life will be happiest and you will have the best reality that God has for you if you obey the owner's manual. You want to drive your car around? You want to get from place to place? You will change your oil. You will put gas in the tank. You will make sure your tires are inflated, and you'll make sure all the other stuff is running. Why? Because you won't make it if you don't. See, if you want to know that God is blessing you, you want him to use you, you want to know the joy he has in store for you, you will read the owner's manual and not only hear it, but obey it. So when he says, do not commit adultery. You will not live with your girlfriend. When he says, do not commit fornication, you can't have sex outside of marriage, then you don't have those types of relationships with people and you're not looking at stuff like that on the internet. When he says that you ought to forgive others because do you realize how much forgiveness God's given you? Then you won't be a person who holds grudges and has an unforgiving spirit. 
When he says don't covet, you will not be a person who has to have bigger and better and more of this and get this in the mail and you have to go and get this and have this and you have to have the bigger. That's not going to be you because you have an inner treasure that no one else has. See, finding our freedom and the law of liberty changes us because we obey God's word. Listen, and we find our happiness in it. It's not that, oh, okay, God, I'll do that. I won't do this sexually. I won't do this. It's not that. Notice what he says. Look at the text. He will be blessed in his doing. It's the second beatitude of James. The first one was verse 12. The second one is this one. Here's what he says. And you know what? And when you hear it and you do it, and you do it, that's where the happiness comes in. See, we think happiness means don't tell me what to do and I'll do my own thing. He says there is no happiness in that if you're a Christian. True freedom equals true happiness, finding the restrictions that God has for you. That's the first if anyone. The second one is a contrast, not between hearing and doing, but the two kinds of religious people And I think these two types of religious people, James puts them in there because they're perfect examples of someone who hears and does or hears and does not. But he says it just a little bit differently. And the two religious people, here's the difference between them in verses 26 and 27. One religion religion person is religious on the outside but has no inner control. But the other one is religious on the outside but has a matching inside, he has inner control. Let me show you how James puts it together. And by the way, just so you know what's at stake when I'm talking the last few minutes about this. Jesus says the difference between these two religions is one is worthless, listen to me, worthless, and the one is worthy. One is pure and undefiled. One is that God, it fits God's standards. God approves of it. And the other one, God says, it isn't mean a thing to me. That's the categorical difference between these two. So keep that in mind. Here's what he says. If anyone, verse 26, thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue. Now, wouldn't you think the contrast would be, hey, hearing and doing, he doesn't do. And so now he's going to say, here's a guy who, no, he doesn't talk about doing here. He gives a specific example of doing. Now, he's going to go all over the tongue test. I mean, he's going to be all over that subject in chapter 3. This is a little bit of a preview for it. But here's what he says. You want to know if you've really been changed. You want to know the acid test. One of the main things you could ask yourself is, if you're really different on the inside and God's word has taken hold of you, let me tell you this. There will be control of your tongue. That's what he says. I think what he's done in these last seven verses or so, eight or nine verses, is he's given us a breakdown of what it means to be slow to wrath, verses 19 through 21, quick to hear what we just talked about, 22 to 25, and slow to speak in these last ones. And he says, here's the real acid test. If you've been changed on the inside in your heart, it will show up in your mouth. And so he says, In verse 26, if anyone thinks he's religious but doesn't bridle his tongue, if you can't control your mouth and what you say and how you say it and when you say it, your heart is deceived. Again, deceived. See, you're fooling yourself 
If you can't control it, see, he says, you don't bridle. He uses the same analogy in chapter three. Bridle, you know what a bridle, you put it in a horse's mouth, it chomps down on it. You can control him. You can control the direction, where he goes, what he does. Why? Because you have a bit in his mouth. And see, here's the, do you have a Bible bit in your mouth? Does God be able to control you? See, if he's in you and really moving in you, he'll control what you say and how you say it. But if not, if you're in control, and the things that come out of your mouth will be opposite of what they ought to be. See, he would say this in chapter 3, that a tongue uncontrolled by God is set on fire of hell. And you have to ask yourself, do I have a hell tongue or a heaven tongue? Because that is truly the difference in my eternal destiny. And by this, hear me, not just saying wrong words, bad words, not just saying perverse words, cuss words, but it's in the context of a relationship in a church. See, he's saying about divisive words, attacking words, hateful words, gossip, slander type words. He says, if you can talk like that and you give God the awesome word, oh God, I love you, God, you're this, that, and the other, but you talk to people in a completely different way, he says, you're deceiving your own heart. The only time he uses that word in this entire epistle, heart, is this verse. Because he wants you to see through the lens of Scripture deep down in the most integral recesses of your heart to who you really are by how you speak. So let me ask you, what has your mouth said about your heart this week? Ask your wife. Ask your children. Ask your people who you work with. See, this religion has a mouth problem because it has a heart problem, just like Jesus said. And that heart problem is so deceptive that it gives you an erroneous view of yourself. You really think you're this because you read your Bible this morning, but after you read your Bible, you had a big argument with your wife and you got ugly and you said some things in front of your kids and it doesn't just seem real, does it? He says, this kind of religion is worthless, powerless, useless is the word. That's how it's translated. In other words, it does, doesn't change a thing inside of you, and that's why you talk the way that you do. Comparatively, verse 27 says, let me tell you about a different kind of religious person. This is a per person who has their doing lead to interchange. And he says this way, verse 27, here's a pure and undefiled religion. See, it's inside and the outside are connected. The first religion doesn't. They say their heart has changed, but it shows in the tongue that it isn't. But the one that's real, the one that God approves of, is pure and undefiled. I mean, on the inside, they are a righteous person. They are holy. And you know how they demonstrate it? Watch this. Pure and undefiled is this. Two infinitive phrases, to visit the father and widows in their affliction, number one. Number two, to keep himself unspotted from the world. Those are the measuring sticks of interchange. It's not, say, they went to church. Did you see that? It wasn't how much Bible they read, although those are great things to do. It wasn't how they served in certain ministries in the church, although that is fantastic. You know what the genuine thing is that you do that shows it? How you care for people whose needs are greater than your own. And to visit the fatherless and widows is not just say, hey, let me stop by your house for a couple minutes. And that's great to do, but it's actually more than that. The fatherless and widows are often coupled in the Old Testament, and they are the poorest people group 
the most needy, helpless people group there is. And he says, true, authentic Christianity, a nonfiction faith, is always seeing people the way God sees them. It sees their needs. We don't just walk by the Lazarus sitting at our gates. We don't just walk by people in our church who have needs. We are looking for how we can help using our time and our treasures and our talents. We are looking how to get involved. Listen, not just to help them out. Here's a check. Don't get me wrong. Great thing to do. But it says, visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. Visit them when things are really bad and they're struggling and they're really suffering and they're hurting. That's when we care for people the most. And he says, and to keep yourself unstained from the world. Now, see, this is the hard part, isn't it? It's doing both. It's having orthodoxy and orthopraxy. See, it's, it's caring for purity, unspotted from the world, and caring for people. See, there's a holiness that says, I can't be around you because you're not holy. That's not what James is talking about. He says, this is a holiness that cares about people who are down and out and don't have their life together, are really needy, but you care about them. And at the same time, as you go out into the world, you're not of it. You love people without loving the world system, he says. It's both together. It's loving people inside the church and people outside the church in the way that Jesus did. See, that's the kind of religion that James is teaching us about. That's the kind of religion he would say is true, it's pure, it's undefiled. Before God and the Father. See, that's the standard. Before God and the Father. It's not what it is before man so we can impress people. No, it's before God. God is the standard, and we look at him, and he wants to tell you, here's what I'm impressed with. You visit people who have real needs, and you get involved. Jesus said, and I'll close, in Matthew 25, on the day of judgment, in verses 31 through 46, and Jesus says there's two groups, the sheep and the goats, and the difference will be this, that when I was needy, And he says, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was in prison, you came. And then when I was homeless, you welcomed me and you visited me in prison. And they ask him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and give you food? When did we come and visit you? When did we welcome you into our homes when you didn't have anything? He says, when you did it unto the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. And he says, but let me tell you this, when you didn't do it, when you didn't help people who had needs and when you didn't see them like that and you didn't welcome them into your home and you didn't use the resources I gave you and you didn't visit them and you didn't want to get involved and you didn't want to associate themselves but you stayed within the walls of the church and you didn't do any of those things, he says, you also didn't do it to me. And he says, and these that didn't do it will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into life eternal. That's what James is talking about. That's what he's talking about. So please, this morning, if you are a Bible auditor and you are hearing what God says, but you're not doing it in these profound ways as a practice in your life, please consider that you might be deceiving yourself. Let's pray. In just a few moments, we're going to welcome in Don and Sherry, my mother and father-in-law in just a moment into our membership of our church.
and John, if he's here. But before we do, perhaps with every head bowed and every eye closed, you'd say, Pastor Walker, listen, I've, I've heard, <laughs> I've heard the word this morning, but I'm not the doer I ought to be. And let me tell you this, I'm not looking for a generic statement like that because everyone, including Pastor Walker, has a gap between what I hear and know and do. But I'm looking at the pattern and practice of your life. Pastor Walker, listen, I hear the Bible, I study it, I, re- I love the Bible, but I'll have to be honest, the gap between what I know and do is way, way too big. And without saying anything further, would you just say, with your head bowed, like, that's me, please, here's my hand, pray for me. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, many, thank you. I want to be a doer of the word. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. I see your hand. Appreciate it. Father, we have heard from you today. We have heard your word. And I pray for those who raise their hand, and we all really truthfully want to join in with them. We need to be doers. Not that we can earn your grace or earn your favor, but because you've already given it to us. You are worthy of that. And Father, I'm grateful that along the way, when our doing isn't what it ought to be, even as believers, that your grace is there for us to forgive us, pick us back up, and push us again and again to be more of a doer like you are. You said, Master, I always, I always do those things that honor him. Would to be, Master, that today that we might be more like that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.